0: I think we're we're at a moment where we can take a step back and say, you know, this technology is actually really valuable.
1: It is the week of March 14th, and welcome to episode 123 of Fault Lines, the National Security Institute's podcast that explores the disagreements between the political left and right on issues of national security and foreign policy. I'm Lester Munson, your host. Cryptocurrency has been a major topic of conversation in terms of Russia's invasion of Ukraine, especially with regards to how virtual currency will relate to isolating Russia's economy in the wake of their invasion. Today's episode will feature Juan Zarate global co-managing partner and chief strategy officer at K2 Integrity, chair of the Center on Economic and Financial Power at the Foundation for the Defense of Democracies, and former deputy assistant to the president and deputy national security advisor for combating terrorism for a deep dive on the role of cryptocurrency in the Russian-Ukrainian war. Juan, thanks for joining us today. I'm so happy to be with you, Lester. Thanks for having me. So to start, why don't you walk us through briefly the overall standing of cryptocurrency today, particularly as it pertains to national security and the Russian invasion of Ukraine?
0: Well, it's a complicated uh, set of questions. What's fascinating here, Lester, is I think the conflict uh, and the Russian war in Ukraine and the use of economic sanctions and financial measures um, and the, the fear of evasion and, and Russian alternatives to the formal banking system are meeting the crypto markets at a time when the crypto economy has just come into fruition, has just crossed the, the Rubicon of legitimacy, right? And so I think the first thing to note is that the crypto economy itself is, is very um, nascent. It's immature, uh, but it's legitimate, right? We, we've reached the stage where we're no longer talking about sort of a niche technology or something that people are just, uh, you know, toying with on the side of the markets. This is now part of the financial system as an asset class, as a potential alternate payment system, as an alternate form of fiat currency in the form of central bank digital currencies, uh, in the form of different investment vehicles, Um you know, and and that is still very much nascent information. And you see that with regulators trying to get their arms around it. That then meets the moment of this crisis, which is um, seeing, I think, the most dramatic use of economic and financial measures to isolate a major economy in modern history. Um, and the question then of how the virtual currency economy as it's evolving relates to that conflict and how it. Uh, it's impacted by it, how it impacts what the Russians can do uh, and how we think about this ecosystem as an alternate to the U.S.-backed system, which is proving incredibly effective in crippling the Russian economy or at least using economic levers to isolate Russia in the wake of their invasion
1: of Ukraine. So it, it appears that a lot of these uh, cryptocurrency exchanges are cooperating with the U.S. and other authorities in implementing sanctions. But so far they're resisting broader calls to ban all Russian users from their platforms. What do you think about them possibly taking that next step?
0: Well, it's a great question. And I think you know the, the crypto uh, ecosystem and in particular the virtual asset service providers um, have had to grapple with a whole series of regulations um, that they think may or may not apply to their technologies, right? And so that's been a bit of the tension with regulators in recent years. Now, in full disclosure, I've been an advisor to Coinbase since 2014, so I've watched this up close and personal, but I want to make sure the listeners understand uh, that relationship and and any potential bias I may have embedded in what I'm saying. But um, what you've had is the industry kind of trying to grapple with what it means to be regulated um, and and how they can be good good citizens, especially if they want to be legitimate actors. Uh, In fact, you've seen Coinbase announce that they've closed 25,000 accounts uh, it, tied to the, to the Russia, um, uh, Russian invasion. Um, and I think the entire industry um, is grappling with how to manage this risk, um, how to manage risk when uh, they may not have sanctioned institutions on their platforms or on their exchanges or, 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 or holding wallets um, and how, how to think about the Russian economy as a whole in terms of exposure and frankly, that's not unique to the crypto ecosystem. I mean, you see this with the private sector, many of which are divesting or, or leaving um, uh, you know, Russia or closing their doors like McDonald's and Starbucks.
1: And- Self-sanctioning.
0: Self-sanctioning, which, which I think I'd like to come back to because it's been an incredibly powerful part of what's happened in, in, in this uh, context. So lots of divestment. Lots of closing of doors, lots of uh, signals that there's no future investment in Russia because of what Russia's done and the risks attendant to doing business in Russia. That said, not all private entities have closed their doors. Um, it's clear not all Russian entities and certainly not all Russian citizens are sanctioned. Um, and so I think the entire Western economy is grappling with what do we do with Russia? As a whole, are we trying to isolate it completely? Trying to cut it off? Trying to decouple it? Um, the answer isn't fully clear. I think the trend is that's where we're headed, and that's where the the very aggressive sanctions seem to be taking us. But that's not where we are yet. Um, and I think the crypto uh, players are grappling with that because not all Russian citizens are bad. They're not all oligarchs. They're not all part of the. Russian war effort. And some would even argue, you know, crypto gives a degree of independence and autonomy to individuals that's outside the control of the Kremlin. Uh, It gives the ability to get aid into hard to reach places like Ukraine. Um, And so you've seen uh, crypto being used to to get aid and materiel uh, to uh, those in need in Ukraine and the refugee populations. So there's an interesting question here about what do we do about russian risk how do you calibrate it and how does how does the crypto economy account for it given that it's a potential outlet for sanctions evasion and those seeking to work around the controls in the formal financial system
1: what about uh, speaking of risks what about retaliatory cyber attacks by russia against crypto exchanges that are complying with sanctions are there are there ways we can help Help protect them in that instance?
0: I think we have to. And this is something I've argued for a long time that we have to think differently about the public private defense of our financial system, precisely because nation states like Russia, like Iran, like North Korea, don't really divide in their mind between public and private, right? And when they see uh, that private entities, be they banks or virtual asset service providers, uh, or uh, credit card companies, are in essence serving as agents of divestment, agents of sanctions enforcement. Um, in the mind of Vladimir Putin, uh, this is an element of war. It's not just you know, I- an interesting sanctions policy or a, or a controversial business decision. This is actually a part of competition and conflict in the mind of Vladimir Putin. The same goes for the mullahs in Tehran, The same goes for Kim Jong-un in Pyongyang. Um, And this is why, for a long time, I've said we've got to think differently about the potential attacks from nation-state actors or sophisticated mixes of state and non-state actors going after key U.S. institutions uh, to systemically affect our economy and our national security and I think this is a, a, a very important moment, a, a, you know, a critical moment uh, for U.S. authorities, for the private sector to be collaborating, for there to be uh, active information exchange, uh, proactive defensive measures, um, and frankly, measures on the part of the private sector. To, we saw this with Microsoft recently, uh, patching you know malign activities in the cyber domain, and so I, I think you know we are at a moment where we have to think much more proactively about protecting not just the formal financial system, not just the big banks, uh, but the major institutions in the crypto economy uh, that are important to, to that part of the financial system.
1: So the Bank of Russia has warned that the Kremlin's increased use of digital currencies could pose a threat to financial stability. Is Russian use of crypto opening up any vulnerabilities the U.S. and our European allies, could exploit against Putin? Well, it's a
0: fascinating question because I, I think there are really two dimensions to not just Russia's adoption of crypto, but, but any country's adoption. One is the allowance of the crypto economy to flourish without state control, right? The ability to have registered virtual asset service providers, technology providers, exchanges, all operating within the economy, Within regulatory bounds, right, and that's really the U.S. model at this point. The U.S. Fed, you know, the Federal Reserve has not issued a digital dollar. They're, they're, they've issued the report with that question. Uh, President Biden's executive order on uh, on virtual currencies, you know, raises that question and sort of urges us in that direction. But that hasn't happened yet. But so there's the there's the open economy, if you will, of crypto, and then there's the world of of central bank-controlled or state-controlled digital currencies. And that's really been the realm that China, for example, has wanted to explore and control, uh, Russia very much so. And Russia's had kind of a love-hate relationship with crypto in that regard, You know, sometimes on, sometimes off, in terms of their allowances. So there's an interesting question here, because uh, the Bank of Russia, I think, is talking about the central bank and the institutions of state and their reliance on crypto being a potential vulnerability for uh, the financial system. Um, there, there's also, I think, for Vladimir Putin and, and autocrats who seek to control the the, uh, the sinews of the economy and relationships in the financial and commercial domain and the data that comes with it. Um, there's something challenging with, you know, open systems like Bitcoin and others that they don't control uh, and that can be uh, tracked and traced with open ledgers, et cetera. So, you know, there's an interesting debate here. Any central bank, Bank of Russia is like other central banks, is going to be worried about systemic risk, right? What risk is injected if we adopt digital currency? I think the bigger problem now for the Bank of Russia is the implosion of the Russian economy and the the cratering of the ruble, the value of the ruble. So, you know, Bank of Russia has, you know, other systemic problems on their hands now that they didn't prior to the invasion of Ukraine. Um, And I I think, you know, that makes anything tied to the ruble, anything tied to the Russian economy risky uh, and to a certain extent dangerous um, and problematic, which, uh,
1: you know, translates into the crypto domain as well. What specific risks to market stability in Western countries might result from Russian deregulation of cryptocurrencies, especially with convertible crypto or the digital ruble?
0: It's a, it's a great question. I, I think there is, you know, in my mind, there's probably two, two issues at play. One, the more immediate and tactical, which is, does Russian reliance on crypto in the near term serve as an outlet? To the Russian economy for sanctions evasion and to allow uh, new payment channels and new um, n- n- new sort of sourcing of wealth and and placement of wealth uh, outside the bounds of the of the current system so that the constriction campaign, the um, the decoupling that's happening with the Russian economy as a result of sanctions is in essence, you know, uh, weakened or at least um you know, temp the effects are tempered. So there's that dimension which is it doesn't go to the, sort of the core systemic concerns of the international financial system, but it does go to this question of how does the legitimate financial system operate, and does crypto, whether in a kind of an open market context in in, in Russia or in a more controlled environment connected, let's say, to the Chinese uh, crypto economy, does that form? Uh, an alternate economy that allows Russia to evade the pressure and to continue with its adventurism. right? That, I think, is what most people are thinking about and worried about. The Russian economy itself, um, Russian assets, aren't of such scale that you would say, look, what's happening in Russia from a crypto dimension fundamentally puts at risk the entire crypto economy, because so much of that crypto economy is coming from Asia, it's coming from North America, um, that I, I don't think you've got you know, a, a real problem. I think that the challenge with any financial product, and we saw this in the 2008 uh, mortgage, uh, mortgage-backed security crisis, is the intermingling of financial products and services in a way that we don't understand systemically. And so I think the real challenge here is, does does a corner of the crypto economy emerge and get entangled with the the, uh, the financial system globally in a way we don't fully understand, and that injects risk systemically in a way that we can't control. You know, I think that's really what the regulators are worried about. Part of that is not understanding the technology fully. Part of it is not fully understanding how all these pieces and parts connect. And so, in the Russian context, then systemically, the question might be: Well, how does the Russian crypto economy begin to intermingle with other elements of that economy as it then integrates into the formal financial system. Um, I don't think anyone has that clear, in part because the Russian crypto economy, I think, is fairly immature.
1: So you don't see uh, a digital ruble as potentially uh, posing uh, serious uh, risk to the dominance of the U.S. dollar?
0: Not at all, especially not now. I, I think it was already a stretch to think that the crypto ruble would would begin to affect the you know dollar dominance. Now there's lots of elements to dollar dominance. The dollar is the chief reserve currency, chief trading currency, the chief currency used in oil trade, um, and and so you know there are lots of factors that go into whether or not the dollar will remain a, a dominant currency, um, but. You know having a crypto ruble out in the marketplace um, is not going to be one of the factors that drives the market and countries and investors away from the from the use of the dollar um, I think actually you know this moment where Russia's um, doing such damage to its reputation and being so isolated really undermines anything that Russia does from a, an economic or financial perspective anything they They do or launch at this point is going to be tainted. And there's going to be an assumption that a lot of what they do is intended to evade sanctions. So it's a little bit like a hunter's trap, right? The the more steps they take to try to evade or to to account for their isolation, the more it looks like they're wriggling out of the trap and will get further squeezed, right? And this is really the danger then to China, because if China becomes uh, the outlet for the economy, for... Uh, the alternate to SWIFT in terms of bank uh, messaging, or even if they tie the digital yuan to the crypto ruble, that will put immediately at risk the legitimacy of those uh, systems or institutions from a Chinese perspective. So even if Beijing wanted to be full-throated in their support of Russia uh, in Russia's invasion of Ukraine, which it's unclear that China really wants to be, but even if they wanted to be, I think they would be checked by the fact that their own legitimacy economically and financially would be harmed if they were to, to openly support Russia or serve as an outlet. And I think in that regard, not only is the ruble harming its credibility, whether in digital form or in uh, standard fiat form, but the digital wand starts to become even Further questioned if it's tied into the Russian economy in some way. And in that regard, I think this may be a moment where the dollar is re energized. um, And especially in an economy where um, digital, I mean, dollar backed digital currencies like USDC, Tether, others that are in the marketplace and gaining traction uh, really are popular. And part of what makes these popular is that they're backed by the dollar. So in, in many ways, this is a moment of reinforcing the role of the dollar as opposed to weakening it.
1: Juan, I'm going to go off script here and ask you a question that I've, I've kind of been dying to ask you. What, what can Congress do now to implicate the relationship financial uh, in the crypto space or financially otherwise between Russia and China? Is this, is this a moment of opportunity for American policymakers uh, to do I think exactly what you were kind of referring to there, where use this opportunity to advance the dominance of the dollar and really kind of undermine our potential adversaries around the world
0: yes, I, I think I think there's a, a couple of things actually. And part of what's been so powerful with respect to the sanctions is not just u s action but u s action in coordination with our European and Asian and other allies and when president biden said we're going to deny russia access not just to the dollar but to the sterling and to the euro and to the yen that was very powerful not just rhetorically but because it signaled that the key currencies around the world and the key banking centers had made a decision to start shutting off access to the russian financial system now it's it's come in different forms uh, given the different um, you know authorities and different jurisdictions uh but but that's been really important. And so I think, you know, the f- first thing that can be done is a signal from Congress and the administration that we're going to think about secondary sanctions vis-a-vis the Russia sanctions program. And we're not just going to do it as the U.S. We're going to do it with Europe and with Japan and Australia and South Korea and our other al- key allies and key banking centers. And what that will do is it will set... The market expectation as to where the potential targets of sanctions might be and how far the taint of Russian activity will go. And so that begins to then set the baseline with respect to China, which is to say, if you have Chinese entities doing business with sanctioned Russian banks, they are now at risk. If you have a, a, a payment system or a messaging system that's plugging in to a sanctioned Russian. Entity that is now at risk. So, the signaling of potential secondary sanctions—you don't have to apply them yet, but the signaling itself is very important. And if you could do it in a multi-jurisdictional way, that's very powerful. The second thing I would do is, you know, I would—I always argue for Congress working very closely with the administration. Right? This needs to be kind of a, a dynamic duo approach uh, to application of sanctions, as opposed to kind of adversarial, which is what we've seen often in the past. But I think having a a very clear eye on what the sanctioned entities are doing next and what the Chinese are doing is important. Because I can imagine applying not just sanctions, but regulations like Section 311 of the Patriot Act, primary money laundering concern, to particular payment channels, um, particular forms of transactions, maybe uh, particular uh, types of crypto institutions that are helping Russians evade, et cetera. So there's, there is going to be more that comes out in the wake of the pressure that I think we need to look at. And then having Congress provide authorities if need be, uh, or at least signaling that they want authorities to be used against those uh, elements of connectivity that are providing Russia outlet. And that really, I think, tempers China's desire politically to do more for for Russia, we, we saw this, by the way, Lester, you know this story, back in 2005, 2006, when we uh, used Section 311 against Banco Delta Asia, the private bank in Macau that was, in essence, banking all sorts of illicit North Korean activity. Um, that sent a shockwave into the financial system, including with the banks in China. And so despite the fact that the Communist Party and the foreign ministry in Beijing wanted the banks to continue to do business with the North Koreans, the finance ministry, the central bank, and the banks themselves did not want to because of the taint. And so we have to recognize that there are these splits within the Chinese system that implicate their legitimacy beyond Chinese borders that we then need to leverage for our purposes here. Uh, and that then should temper China's willingness to support Russia.
1: Great. All right. Let's, uh, let's nerd out on, some, uh, on a law enforcement question. The Department of Justice's Klepto Capture Task Force could potentially use civil and criminal asset forfeiture in response to Russian attempts to evade sanctions using crypto. What are the legal and technological complications involved here, given the pseudonymity of crypto transactions?
0: Great question, and this does require us to nerd out just a little bit. So, uh, listeners, please forgive us. But um, I think the first area of complication legally is, uh, you know, giving evidence to and having proof of lineage, right? So, you, regardless of, of type of asset class, whether you're talking about crypto or a luxury yacht, um, in order to seize something, regardless of the authority, it can be a civil uh, authority in the U.S. context or a criminal um or even a freezing action that's administrative let's you know take a, an OFAC action um that you have to have some evidence that it's tied to the individual sanctioned or the case being brought and so you can't just sort of willy-nilly say look we think this yacht belongs to this person and and not have you know the title the evidence the financials behind it so the first challenge is other than who are the targets and what are the assets, it's how do you prove that these are then tied? Uh, the assets are tied to the individual, uh, and that they own and control them in a way that's uh, material for purposes then of of taking the administrative or 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 criminal action. So that's the first sort of complication. The second in the crypto context is, as you say, Lester, um, how do you define that lineage? of ownership and control uh, when it's often hard, uh, depending on the types of crypto you're talking about, uh, the mechanisms used to to trade or to move it, are they using tumblers? You know, these kinds of things that are intended to obfuscate beneficial ownership, et cetera. How do you then track it, trace it, uh, and prove it? Um, And again, as I said at the start, with the financial markets and crypto, this is all at the early stages of maturation, and law enforcement and the intelligence community, I think, are maturing quickly. Uh, they've demonstrated that they can track and trace. We've seen now, in more than a couple of cases, the ability of the U.S. government to claw back, um, you know, digital currency payments in the context of ransomware. Um, you know, the the largest DOJ seizure uh announced just recently what 3.6 billion dollars worth of Bitcoin now part of that had to do with the uh, with the uh, with the value of the Bitcoin as it grew over time it wasn't that that much when it was uh, when it was paid but in any event it shows and demonstrates that the US government's getting more sophisticated at being able to track trace and identify the the ownership of the funds and part of that is Identifying the wallets, part of it is triangulating with other information. So it's a, it's a combination of digital forensic capabilities tied to good old-fashioned investigations and human sources that allow them to do that kind of tracing. And I'm assuming that will be brought to bear here uh, if we see that oligarchs have crypto assets uh, in one form or another.
1: All right. And we, I want to go back to this um... Uh, kind of, uh, global financial system issue. We touched on this a little bit in light of Russia's near total expulsion from the SWIFT system. Could crypto's public ledger, which validates blockchain transactions potentially serve as an alternate SWIFT system? Do you see Russia trying to use crypto for this purpose?
0: I don't, I don't think so. Uh, and I think there's, there's several reasons why, um, you know, Russia has tried to create an alternate to Swift. This was after the 2014 set of sanctions, uh, where they and China both realized that they were at risk with respect to being de-swifted in a situation much like we're encountering today. And so, in 2014, Russia established, uh, you know, the what the the acronym is SPFS. It's a it's a messaging system uh, that. Involves, based on what I know in terms of the data I have, 338 institutions, um, but not much volume. Not much volume. So, a they've already tried to institute an alternate that's Russian-based. Doesn't have a ton of purchase. Certainly doesn't have a lot of purchase outside of uh, Russian uh, territory or institutions. So, that, in a sense, they've they've already thought of the alternative, and the alternative is is their own messaging system. It's not crypto. Second reason is, um, you know, it's, it's very hard at scale, uh, to replace, I think at volume, uh, the kinds of transfers and transactions we're talking about. So you, you could use an open ledger construct, uh, to, to do transfers, but you would have to tokenize, um, you know the, the transfers are not just the messages; they're the actual transfer of funds, um, or the or the indication thereof. And so, the Russians would have to sort of completely convert into a crypto economy to a certain extent to make the crypto messaging valid, uh, because they would still have to engage in the transfer across borders of whatever assets they're they're messaging about. Um, so that's a that's a problem. The third is. I think the Russians now are wary of any system that they don't control. Um, and, you know, the open ledger system is the height of decentralization and the height of lack of control. And in fact, it would probably, you know, the SWIFT system isn't open for kind of public scrutiny. Um, in some ways, it would be more transparent than relying on SWIFT or some other messaging system that is Encrypted or or private, um, and so I think their instinct would not be to move toward a more open architecture, transparent system. They're going to try to hide more of what they're doing. They're going to try to control more of that system, um, and that means they're going to try to develop their own ways of evading or transferring uh, that wouldn't be, you know, uh, on on an open architecture system like
1: uh, like you know the, the Bitcoin ledger. All right. Let's, let's pull back, uh, and go, and go meta here, uh, at, at the conclusion of the, of the podcast. And, and let me ask you, uh, do you see the, the cryptocurrency realm and all of its attendant policy issues as a strategic strength for the American and, and Western style system of openness and uh, support for the individual and a real, uh, a real advantage against authoritarian systems uh, like the kind we see in Beijing and Moscow. And I know those are two very different systems, but if you've, as you've been pointing out here, Putin is threatened by openness and things that he can't control, much as, as we're seeing uh, from the Chinese Communist Party. So is, is this whole arena of financial activity something that the U.S. should be embracing as a strategic advantage in this global competition.
0: Absolutely. And I love the way you posed the question, Lester, because I think we have thought about the crypto economy through the lens of risk. You know, I, I've watched the evolution of this economy since, you know, the early days of Coinbase. Um, I, and I wrote about it in Treasury's War. Uh, that was when Bitcoin was $15. I wish I'd bought Bitcoin then. But in any event, um, you know, I've been watching it for a while. And, you know, the, the initial... Sort of scrutiny of of the economy and the technology has been to uh, to be both skeptical of it and also to imagine the risks and those risks are are real you know the money laundering risks the fraud risks the systemic risks as it gains volume and, and exposure so all that's valid but it's often been the only lens through which at least in the early days crypto was viewed now that we're in this moment of legitimacy for crypto and seeing a maturity of kind of the regulatory treatment and uh, you know, serious consideration of a, of a U.S. digital dollar, et cetera, um, I think we're, we're at a moment where we can take a step back and say, you know, this technology is actually really valuable. It's a, it's a new form of the economy, and, and those in the industry who are committed to it, you know, liken it to, uh, you know, the, the second coming of the Internet, but for the financial world, uh, it's an opportunity for greater financial inclusion, greater autonomy for individuals, Less friction, less cost. Uh, so, great advantages potentially, um, but with risk. So, I do think this is a strategic advantage for the U.S. Uh, both technologically, because we still lead the innovation. I think we have the leading institutions that want to be legitimate in this space, uh, that want to be in the United States. Um, I think you know it's a it's an emerging part of the financial system that we should be shaping. Um, we should be defining the rules of the road and the, the elements of it and the, the contours. Um, and so we should be very, you know, intent on that. And I think the latest executive order really does get at that balance, needing to think about the strategic advantage. And I think fundamentally, Lester, to your point, this is a technology that plays to America's strengths, not just because of the innovation, but because of the autonomy it gives to individuals. Now, there's danger with that, of course. Individuals can do dangerous things. Uh, individuals can be co-opted by state actors. Individuals can act criminally, et cetera. But in a world that that is seeing a challenge from autocratic regimes that are trying to gather more data, control more elements of the financial and commercial system, and exert more power, not just over their populations, but others, see Russia's invasion of Ukraine. Uh, this is a technology and system that actually challenges that authoritarian uh, paradigm and allows for a way to work around the overly centralized and um, damaging and corrosive control of the economy and of currency that countries like Iran and Venezuela and Russia and perhaps even China are trying to exert over their population and their trading partners. And so we're now, again, not only sanctions a domain of conflict and war, but I think the crypto system is going to become a domain of intense competition uh, between not just countries and economies, but also types of governance and systems.
1: Uh, And that plays to America's advantage if we play it right. All right. I I know I said that might be the last question. I (laughs) got one more question. And it's something you said you wanted to come back to this concept of companies and industries self-sanctioning and, and pulling out of the Russian market and economy in advance of uh, any kind of specific instruction to do so. It seems to me as a, and I know you're way deep on on sanctions. I'd love to get your take on this. It seems to me as someone who's been looking at this from arm's length for a long time, this is an incredibly surprising development and an amazing uh, advance in, in our ability to impact another country's uh, decision making and context and that kind of thing. This is this has really been something. This phenomenon of self sanctioning has really driven uh, the sanctions against Russia quicker and more impa- in a more impactful way than anyone really imagined. It, that's my interpretation. What what are your thoughts on that,
0: Lester? Absolutely. And part of the reason I wrote Treasury's War back in 2013 when it was published was to Uh, explain the role that the private sector was now playing in the implementation of sanctions, and frankly, how that affected our thinking with respect to sanctions strategy. And and the strategy was, can the private sector begin to adopt the risk that government saw from a national security perspective, but from a business perspective? And I think what you see in the private sector's reaction to Russia's invasion of, of Ukraine is the crystallization of that, which is to say not only have, have companies sort of adopted sanctions risk and have to worry about sanctions risk, which is extreme at this point, but they've also had to worry about other types of risk like corruption and human rights issues and other, other things that are now part of the, the global financial commercial landscape and form part of the decision making in boardrooms and for CEOs and general counsels around the world. And so in a sense, it didn't surprise me the private sector was taking these actions. I was surprised at how quickly um, and some of the actors like the oil actors, because the interestingly, Lester, you know, oil and gas wasn't sanctioned, uh, but immediately had BP, Shell, Exxon saying they were going to pull out, which was remarkable um, at a time when the president of the United States was saying we aren't going to sanction oil and gas. We want to keep that open. Um, But what it does is it represents a, a degree of agency for the private sector that they have in defining the isolation of of a country or an economy that is deemed to be risky. Um, It is a reflection that in in some ways, uh, Russia has gone too far, right? The reputational risk is just too high. And to a certain extent, Russia had been forgiven for all of its malign activities to date, including invasions of Georgia and Crimea, Yeah, it was kind of business as usual, even though there were some sanctions, but people were still doing business in Russia. This was kind of the camel that broke the camel's back reputationally. Um, And you had, you know, company after company uh, withdrawing. I think importantly, Lester, the other thing is this comes at a time when not only is Russian behavior incredibly cruel, inhumane and unjustified, but you have the expectations for corporations around the world rising. Do you know who you're doing business with? right? The anti-money laundering principles, beneficial ownership and control. Do we know that? Anti-corruption principles, um, you know, in the wake of Pandora Papers and Paradise Papers, a lot of scrutiny around those questions. Um, ESG principles, you know, do you have diversity on your board? Do you worry as a company about your carbon footprint? Um, You know, the expectations for corporations to have high levels of standards and principles has, has gone through the roof. And at the same time, Russian behavior has dropped to the floor. Uh, and I think it's that, it's that mismatch of the expectations of the marketplace and what Russia's doing in reality in front of our eyes uh, is what prompted the private sector to act so quickly and so aggressively. And I don't think we've seen the end of it. I think you're going to continue to see the isolation of the Russian economy, and that at the end of the day is going to be the most impactful element of sanctions because governments can issue regulations all they want, but it's what the private sector does in its connectivity and activity with and through Russia
1: that matters most. We'll leave it at that. Juan, uh, terrific conversation. Thanks for joining us.
0: Thanks, Lester. It was a great conversation. I appreciated the questions.
1: That's a wrap. As always, Fault Lines is produced by the National Security Institute. Find out more about the Institute and upcoming events at nationalsecurity.gmu.edu. If you have any topics you'd like us to cover in the future, send us an email at nsi.gmu.edu or tweet us at MasonNatSec. If you like what we are doing here, please be sure to rate, review, and subscribe so that more people can find our show. We'd like to thank Claude Jennings for editing, Caesar Muir for research, Maeve Cronin for production assistance. Join us next week for another provocative conversation and further analysis of national security's fault lines.